0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 188, Pursuit Across New Jersey. With the British evacuation of Philadelphia that I discussed last week, the Continental Army had to decide how to respond. On June seventeenth, 1778, the same night that General Clinton brought the last of his army in Philadelphia across the river into New Jersey, George Washington held a council of war at Valley Forge to debate next steps. A handful of officers wanted to attack the retreating column. General Anthony Wayne and Pennsylvania General John Cadwalader argued most forcefully for a full-on attack. General Lafayette also seemed inclined to support this. General Nathaniel Greene wanted to harass the retreating enemy and engage in a full battle if the British were willing to turn and fight. The Continentals had about 11,000 soldiers fit for duty, along with the possibility of several thousand more New Jersey militia. The British column had an estimated 10,000 soldiers. Because the British were in retreat, they would not necessarily have favorable defensive ground or good positions if the Americans could engage them. General Charles Lee, however, argued strenuously against attack. He did not believe the Americans would stand in general field encounters with British regulars. Even if they could, the French were on their way, risking a general action at this point could result in a devastating failure or capture of the Continental Army right before the support arrived that could be used to overwhelm the enemy. Lee argued that the British were in retreat, and that was a good thing. Let them retreat, and we'll take victory for that. A majority of the Continental officers ended up agreeing with Lee, including General von Steuben of Prussia and General DuPortel of France. The Americans could, of course, harass the retreating column. In doing so, they should not put the main Continental Army at risk. Despite the objections and concerns, General Washington opted to pursue the enemy with the intent of engaging in a general action. The British had crossed primarily at Cooper's Ferry directly out of Philadelphia into what is today Camden, New Jersey. The Army marched inland and spent its first night in and around Haddonfield. The following morning, it began marching north toward New York City. The day the British began the march was Friday, June 19th. As anyone from New Jersey can tell you, leaving on a Friday to try to get to the Jersey Shore is a nightmare. Traffic is always slow and frustrating. And that was certainly the experience of the British and Hessian troops. Although they didn't have to put up with any traffic circles, they did face a host of obstacles. Before they even left Philadelphia, the Continentals deployed hundreds of soldiers under General William Maxwell to delay and harass the enemy. Recall that General Maxwell, who was from New Jersey, had coordinated much of the forage war a year and a half earlier. He had used local militia to harass the British foraging parties and to keep the enemy bottled up in defensive entrenchments. He would use many of these same tactics against the British column marching to New York. Also working with General Maxwell was General Philemon Dickinson of the New Jersey militia. Dickinson is another of the war's unsung heroes. He was the brother of John Dickinson, the Pennsylvania delegate who is probably best remembered for his opposition to the Declaration of Independence. Along with his brother John, Philemon Dickinson was born in Maryland When they were both very young, the family moved to an estate in Delaware. The Dickinsons also held properties in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Philemon studied law in Philadelphia, but never practiced. Instead, he moved to an estate near Trenton. He married his first cousin, Mary Cadwallader, who was the sister of Philadelphia Militia General John Cadwallader. Shortly after the Battle of Lexington in 1775, Dickinson received a commission as colonel of the Hunterton County Militia. Several months later, in October, he received a promotion to Brigadier General of the New Jersey Militia. Dickinson was one of the few militia leaders who joined Washington for the Battle of Trenton the following year. During that battle, Dickinson had to order the artillery to shell his own home, which the Hessians had occupied. Dickinson and his militia then moved north with the Continentals to harass the enemy in northern New Jersey. His militia captured a regiment of 400 British soldiers during that campaign. Just before Washington's crossing, when things were looking really bleak for the Patriots, John Dickinson had resigned his position in the Pennsylvania militia and wrote a letter to his brother Philemon. The letter recommended that Philemon also resign his commission and that he not hold on to any Continental dollars. This defeatist letter smeared the reputations of both brothers. At least one account I read says that Philemon resigned his commission in the New Jersey militia in February, although I can't really find anything to confirm that fact. It may just be that his militia simply returned home for the winter. That was, after all, what militia did when the act of fighting came to an end. In any case, a few months later, New Jersey named Dickinson a major general and commander-in-chief of the New Jersey militia. He remained active in New Jersey that year, assisting General Sullivan with the attack on Staten Island in November 1777 and also confronting a British raid on Trenton in May 1778. So with the British Army once again in New Jersey, Dickinson was also once again in the thick of things. Working with Maxwell's Continentals, the armies felled trees across roads, destroyed bridges, redirected creeks and rivers to flood certain areas, and generally do whatever they could to slow down the British column. They also provided intelligence to General Washington on the position and movements of the enemy. The delaying tactics worked rather well. Assisting them was a brutal heat wave along with torrential rains. British and Hessian soldiers marched in their heavy wool uniforms, each soldier carrying 60 to 100 pounds of items on his back. The army had several hundred wagons of supplies as well, and the result was extremely slow movement. As I said, the British left Haddonfield on the morning of June 19th and almost immediately began to take harassing fire from local militia. After a 16-mile march to Mount Holly, the army rested for a day. The camped army still faced occasional harassing fire as other soldiers worked to clear impediments from the road ahead. The next day, the British only managed to march another seven miles to Black Horse, uh, what today is called Columbus, then moving on to Crosswick's in a night march, arriving at dawn the following morning. There, Maxwell's Continentals and Dickinson's militia had torn up the bridges that crossed the creek. The Patriots took up defensive positions on the far side of the creek. There were maybe a thousand Patriots against the 10,000-man British Army, so there was no chance that this defense could last very long. However, it forced Clinton to deploy into lines of battle, set up field artillery, and attempt to move regiments around the defensive lines to flank the enemy. The two lines exchanged some fire before the Americans withdrew before the superior force. With that, the Americans had achieved their intended purpose of causing the British to waste a day getting across the creek. From there, the British marched to Allentown, New Jersey, just a few miles southeast of Trenton. It had taken the British six days to move about 32 miles, averaging just over five miles per day. Meanwhile, the Continental Army left Valley Forge on June 19th, the same day that the British began their march from Haddonfield. Washington had left behind only the 3,000 or so sick and disabled soldiers who could not march. He left these under the command of Colonel Philip Van Cortlandt. Most of this invalid corps under Van Cortlandt soon moved to Philadelphia leaving only about 500 men still in Valley Forge who were too sick to travel. Washington gave General Charles Lee the honor of commanding the most forward army and the discretion to choose good defensive ground after crossing the Delaware. Behind Lee was another army under General Anthony Wayne, who had orders to move slowly enough that he kept some distance between himself and General Lee. The Continental Army reached Coriel's Ferry on the Delaware River, a few miles north of Trenton. The Army also made use of Howells Ferry, several miles further upriver. It took a couple of days to get the Continentals and their equipment across, then continuing on to Hopewell, New Jersey, about 20 miles north of the British Army at Allentown. That is where General Lee chose to regroup the Army. By the 23rd, the Continentals had arrived at Hopewell and were ready to move. They rested there until the 24th, when the commanders decided on next steps. In Hopewell, the soldiers cleaned their weapons and prepared several days of rations so that they could eat while on the march. Both Washington and Clinton had good intelligence on the position of their enemy and had to reassess their plans in light of that. Washington was clearly itching for a fight. He had ordered the army to leave behind most of its baggage at the ferries so that the men could travel light. He also ordered entrenching tools be distributed to the soldiers so that they could dig in for a battle when needed. Washington not only had his own army, which was about as large as Clinton's British and Hessian column, but he also had thousands more Continentals in a northern army near Peekskill, New York, under General Horatio Gates. These men could be brought down into action against the British in northern New Jersey. Another 500-man army, a mix of Continentals and Pennsylvania militia under General John Cadwallader, left Philadelphia to support the Continentals. More Pennsylvania associators were also being mustered in hopes of later adding to the American forces. At around 9 a.m. on the morning of the 24th, Washington called another Council of War. Articulating the same views as at the prior council, General Lee still strongly opposed any attack. He thought that an attack on such a well-disciplined enemy of equal size only risked a major defeat. He still wanted to await the arrival of an army from France before seeking another general engagement. Lee said that he thought they should build a, quote, bridge of gold for the British to assist them with their retreat. After all, the enemy was going away. That was what they wanted, there was no benefit in trying to confront them. Lee recommended that they deploy reinforcements to Maxwell and Dickinson to keep up the harassment of the British column and keep it on the move to New York. But he saw no point in trying to impede or slow down the march, let alone bring on a general engagement between the two armies. Generals Green, Wayne, and Lafayette all favored sending a much larger force to annoy the British column and to bring the remainder of the army behind that force as a backup in case the British column turned on them. Lafayette argued that it, quote, would be disgraceful and humiliating to allow the enemy to cross the jerseys in tranquility. In the end, the council agreed to send a 1,500-man force to support Maxwell's and Dickinson's men harassing the British column. Lee signed the compromise agreement, as did Lafayette and Greene. Wayne did not, saying he still believed a much stronger force was needed and that he preferred that they try to push the enemy into a full pitched battle. Lafayette and Green later sent letters to Washington saying that they hoped the 1,500 reinforcements would draw the British into a larger battle. Lafayette also said that Generals von Steuben and Portal also supported this position. Later that day, Washington deployed about 600 riflemen, under Colonel Daniel Morgan, to support General Maxwell. He then deployed another nearly 1,500 men under General Charles Scott to annoy the British left flank and rear. Washington also sent communications to General Dickinson to coordinate attacks with the local New Jersey forces. He deployed General von Steuben to get better intelligence of the enemy's movements. General Scott is another Continental General that I've avoided introducing up until now. Scott took the unusual path of becoming a general, starting his military career as a private. In 1755, shortly after the death of his father, 16-year-old Scott enlisted in the 2nd Virginia Regiment. He had been apprenticed to become a carpenter, but apparently decided that military life would be much more interesting. Scott's first years of service were difficult ones. Following the defeat of the Braddock Campaign shortly before his enlistment, the French and Indians dominated the Virginia backcountry and regularly attacked outposts and settlements. Scott served as a guide for the Army during this time and quickly rose to sergeant. Later in the war, Sergeant Scott served under Colonel George Washington in the effort to capture Fort Duquesne, in the expedition led by British General John Forbes. Washington saw merit in the young teenager and commissioned him as an ensign. After the fall of Fort Duquesne, Scott remained with his unit in the Pittsburgh area, rebuilding defenses and manning garrisons on the western outposts. Near the end of the war, Virginia needed volunteers to put down a Cherokee uprising on the frontier. Scott volunteered and received his captaincy. There, he served under Lieutenant Colonel Adam Stephen. After suppressing the Cherokee uprising, the governor of Virginia disbanded Captain Scott's regiment. Around the same time, Scott's older brother died, leaving him several valuable estates in western Virginia. Scott got married and settled into the life of a prosperous tobacco farmer. As tensions between the colonies and Britain grew, Scott backed the Patriot cause. In 1775, shortly after Lexington, Scott raised a company of soldiers and began drilling again. He offered his company services to Patrick Henry during the military confrontation with the governor. When Virginia finally established two regiments in late 1775, Scott received a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the 2nd Virginia. He played a key role in the Battle of Great Bridge and helping to capture Norfolk and forcing the royal governor, Lord Dunmore, to flee to a British naval ship. In 1776, Scott's regiment was absorbed into the Continental Army. He soon received a commission to full colonel and was assigned to command the 5th Virginia Regiment. There, he served under his old commander, now General, Adam Stephen. They both served under General Washington for the Christmas attack on Trenton, Scott played a conspicuous role in the Second Battle of Trenton, as well as the Forage War that winter. In March 1777, Scott returned home to Virginia. Washington soon recalled him, and with Washington's recommendation, Congress promoted Scott to Brigadier General. He continued to serve under, by this time, Major General Stephen. Scott led his brigade at Brandywine and was one of the most forceful advocates for the attack on Germantown. Following Germantown, General Scott and Stephen accused each other of failures in the leadership during the battle. This ended with Stephen's discharge from the army. Scott then served under General Lafayette and marched out of Valley Forge under the French General's command. To attack the British column in New Jersey, General Scott had his independent command of 1,500 soldiers to harass the enemy. the morning after Scott's deployment, Washington ordered the remainder of the Army to leave their tents and other equipment behind and move about seven miles further east to Rocky Hill and Kingston along the Millstone Creek. From Rocky Hill, Washington deployed General Wayne with about 1,000 men to harass and impede the head of the British column as it marched north. Washington also sent General Lafayette, along with Wayne, and also with his aide, Colonel Alexander Hamilton, to go with them for the purpose of keeping him informed of the brigade's movements. Another source says that Lafayette received a contingent of 3,000 Continental troops with which to confront the British. So Washington was committing far more troops to the field than the Council had recommended. He was deploying them both in front of the British column and behind it. So, regardless of any council consensus that they should just be harassing the column, Washington seemed bent on provoking a full-on battle. Over in the British camp, General Clinton had planned to march north from Allentown to Brunswick, about 25 miles away. Brunswick had been a major British camp a year earlier, before General Howe had abandoned the post when he pulled all of his troops back to New York. The British were quite familiar with the terrain. From there, the column could move east to Amboy and cross into British-controlled Staten Island. Ordinarily, an army on the march on open roads could make that distance in a single day. Given Clinton's pace thus far, it would probably take him three to five days to get there. Clinton expected that the Continentals would intercept his column at Cranberry Township, about ten miles to his north. The Continentals would probably get there first, select good defensive ground, and force a confrontation on their terms. So, instead of marching north to confront the Continentals, Clinton turned the British Column to the east, marching directly to the Jersey Shore. It was a little over 30 miles to Sandy Hook, but it would avoid the confrontation with the Continentals. From Sandy Hook, the British Column could have the support of the British Navy in the New York Harbor, the Continentals would likely not want to attack in that situation and would allow the British to transport the army across the bay back into the city. So, while the Continentals were trying to provoke a battle, the British under General Clinton were pretty clearly trying to avoid one. The change of direction moved the British away from the confrontation and created a race to the sea. General Clinton even debated destroying the 1,500 wagons that were traveling with his army in order to speed up the pace. In the end, though, he decided against it, since he thought it would make him look weak and afraid if he just ran as fast as he could. Clinton already had a morale problem. During the march, he had several soldiers tried and hanged for desertion. He did not want to appear to be running away from the Continentals. He was simply consolidating forces in New York per his orders from London. Even if he was avoiding a confrontation, he did not want it to appear that way. Even so, his decision to change direction and avoid battle redirected the British column to the east toward a village known as Monmouth Courthouse. Next week, you guessed it, the Battle of Monmouth. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box, that's code ARP5O at FactorMeals.com/ARP5O. To get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance, George Davis, and Lewis White for supporting this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to George Hunger for support at the Robert Morris Circle level. I'd also like to thank longtime supporters, Rob Duvall, Andy Chong, and Scott, uh, who didn't give a last name, who have been loyal Patreon supporters for over a year now. Everyone who provides financial support to help cover this show's costs allows me to make it freely available to everyone else who cannot afford to provide financial support. So thanks so much for that. I also wanted to mention that I plan to release another special interview episode later this week. The new episode is a talk with Larry Kidder about his new book, Revolutionary Princeton. The book covers the town of Princeton over the course of the entire war, and we do get into some of the discussion about Princeton during the time around the Battle of Monmouth, so look forward to that special episode to drop sometime in the next few days. This week's episode covered the days following the evacuation of Philadelphia as the British Army tries to make its way across New Jersey to reach New York City. A year earlier, on the way to Philadelphia from New York City, General Howe had avoided marching across New Jersey, instead opting to sail his army all the way down to the Chesapeake and then marched to Philadelphia from Maryland. At that point, Howe's goal was to avoid getting bogged down in a land assault or have his army be a target of potshots and Melissa harassment as it marched across New Jersey. On this return trip, General Clinton could have chosen to board ships and simply sail down from Philadelphia to New York via a much shorter route than Howe took simply by sailing down the Delaware River and then up the coast of New Jersey back to New York City. Doing so would have avoided a conflict, which was clearly one of the British goals. So, why did Clinton opt to march across New Jersey? The biggest reason was Loyalists in Philadelphia. They desperately wanted to sail out of Philadelphia before the Continentals returned. Clinton made room for civilians on his fleet by keeping the army from having to use those ships. Even if the army took some harassing fire it was probably the best option for protecting loyal citizens who needed to flee Philadelphia when the army left. Clinton probably did not fear a threat from the American army. He was only abandoning Philadelphia because he had orders to do so. Despite London's orders, nearly everyone in America was telling him that giving up Philadelphia was a mistake and that the army should either remain or go on the offensive against the starving, ragged Continental Army at Valley Forge. While Clinton obeyed his orders to withdraw to New York, he wasn't concerned about a battle with the Continentals. He was mostly concerned that an American raid would try to steal the British wagons that were traveling with the Army. If he could force the Americans into an all-out battle on ground of his choosing, I think Clinton had an attitude of, Bring it on! He had always criticized Howe for being too conservative and not attacking aggressively enough. He also knew that once he reached New York, he was going to have to send away much of his army and would be prevented from engaging in any new offensives. So I think Clinton welcomed an all out battle before reaching New York. Clinton was not moving through New Jersey at any great speed. New Jersey was not a wilderness there really was not any good excuse for marching only about five miles a day. Yes, there was oppressive heat, and there were efforts by the militia to block roads, but I think part of Clinton's leisurely pace was that he did not mind a confrontation, and that he did not want to appear to be running away from the enemy. Rather, he was marching to New York per his orders, not out of any fear of the Continental Army. That said, he was not some young division leader anymore. He wasn't going to rush into battle anytime, anywhere. That is why he avoided marching directly to Washington's army in northern New Jersey and instead turned and marched east to Sandy Hook. He was not going to let the Americans pick the ground for their fight. All of the movements and marches that I covered today are, of course, leading up to the confrontation at Monmouth Courthouse that I will discuss in more detail next week. There are quite a few books that cover the Battle of Monmouth, including the days leading up to battle, and I've included a list of them at the bottom of my blog entry for this episode. The one of them that I'm picking as my recommendation of the week is A Handsome Flogging, The Battle of Monmouth, June 28, 1778, by William R. Griffith. The book is part of a series from the emergent Revolutionary War, covering key battles of the war. It's a fairly short book, less than 200 pages total, but it focuses on the days leading up to the battle and the battle itself. It's a relatively new book, released in 2020. The author, William Griffith, is a guide at Gettysburg Battlefield. This is his second book. His first was about the Battle of Lake George, during the French and Indian War. If you want to read more about military maneuvering and tactics leading to the Battle of Monmouth, then I suggest you check out A Handsome Flogging. As I said, the book is part of a series being released by the Emerging Revolutionary War. So, this is probably as good a time as any to name the Emerging Revolutionary War as my online recommendation of the week. The group serves as a platform to help authors publishing works related to this era. It also includes links to blogs and other online resources that you might find useful. The group also hosts some live events, although most, of course, have been virtual lately. They are in the process of trying to hold their second day-long symposium on the revolution, which is planned for May of 2021 in Alexandria, Virginia. This was a live symposium that was postponed from 2020, and I guess they're hoping for the best this spring. If you're in the area, or willing to travel, it should be a great event. If you want to learn more about what Emerging Revolutionary War is doing, go to their website at emergingrevolutionarywar.org. As always, there is a direct link to the site on my blog entry for this episode. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.